If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's episode is Rutger Bregman, a popular historian and the author of the 2017 Sunday Times bestseller, Utopia for Realists. Rutger joined us on the podcast to discuss his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. World History's editor, Matt Elton, spoke to him about why taking a positive view of fellow humans is important to build a better society and the historical examples we can draw on to help shift our understanding. Your book, uh, Humankind, covers, as its title implies, a broad scope of human history and nature. If you had to kind of boil it down to a simple idea or set of ideas, what would you say? Most people are pretty decent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) But but it's important to uh, kind of specify, I suppose, you don't mean necessarily good when you say decent. Is that right? No, no, no. Human beings are clearly not naturally good or anything, right? We're capable of pretty horrible things whether you think about jealousy or aggression or violence, you could even make the case that we're the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom, right? I've never heard of a penguin that says, okay, let's lock up another group of penguins and exterminate them all, right? I have heard a lot of, you know, well, not human beings actually say it, but I've read about it, you know, it, it, it does tend to happen. Um, so this is the, the strange paradox about our species, that we're both one of the friendliest, but also one of the cruelest species in the animal kingdom. And has has that always been the case? As a species, have we always been cruel as we are today, I suppose? Well, we all know the two famous philosophers, right? The British Thomas Hobbes, who argued that in the state of nature, we were living lives that, that, lives that were nasty, brutish and short, right? That human beings are sort of naturally selfish and there was a war of all against all going on back when we were still nomadic and togetherers. But then civilization came, you know, that gave us this thin veneer and all the wonderful inventions, agriculture, cities, you name it, uh, that we should be really grateful for. But then you've also got the other line of thought, you know, goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, who argued that, well, actually, civilization is not the solution, but the problem. We used to live pretty good lives uh, as nomadic hunter-gatherers, healthy, egalitarian, but then you know, someone said, you know, this piece of land here, that's mine. Um, And we were stupid enough to believe this guy. It was probably a guy. Um, (laughs) And then everything, everything went wrong. So civilization is really the source of all evil. That was Rousseau's line of thought. And um, usually the Hobbesian thinking is seen as the realistic thinking, you know, that has science on his side and and you name it. Um, And Rousseau has often been dismissed as this naive, idealistic person. And I used to believe that as well. But while researching this book, I started to realize that actually Rousseau was the real realist. Uh, At one point, I had the idea of calling my book Rousseau was right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That actually for hundreds of thousands of years, when we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, the best evidence we have suggests that those lives were 
you know, pretty good. Not perfect. And we were, we were certainly not angels and we were capable of violence, but wars didn't exist. Our societies were relatively egalitarian. We were healthier as well than, than farmers and city dwellers later on. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty much the opposite of everything that I have had learned at school. So is your view then, as as you researched and wrote this book, that civilization is is a curse in a sense? Well, imagine you would have the choice uh, that you could be born in in either sort of a civilized period or a barbarian period, right? Before the dawn of civilization. Um, and you wouldn't know where you would end up, right? You wouldn't know if you would be a peasant in France in the Middle Ages or... Uh, like Louis the Fourteenth, or you know, or maybe a nomadic hunter-gatherer. Um, what would you choose? Would you choose a civilized life or a savage life? Well, I think the 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 option is really clear here. You you should really go for the savage life because the chance that you'll end up in the last past couple of decades is very small, right? Uh, and I mean, I obviously have to admit that. You know, life right now is much better than the nomadic hunter-gatherer's life. We are richer, we are wealthier, we are healthier than ever before. This is probably the best period to live in uh, right now. Uh, but it's a very, very tiny part of the history of civilization that goes back 10,000 years. The biggest part of civilized history is just disaster. It's pandemic, it's, it's pandemics, is wars, is oppression, is hierarchy, is slavery, is patriarchy, is all these horrible things. And those have all been, yeah... In, inventions from civilization uh and um that's all quite recent so yeah if you ever have that choice <laughs> choose the savage life mm. so i mean how how has our perception of human history been flipped why do we think of barbarianism as being bad and savage and civilization as being kind of um helpful and restorative yeah well history is being written by the by those who conquer right by the victors is that English? Victors? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nomadic and togetherers didn't really write history books. And so it's also quite hard to know exactly how people lived their lives 20, 30,000 years ago, right? Because there's just little evidence. Um, they didn't have many possessions. Uh, they, um, uh, yeah, they, they were nomadic, right? They went from place to place. So I think there's a bias often in both archaeology and history to focus on those that actually left things behind because that's what we can study, right? And they were often those in power. So this is sort of the source material that we have available to us is not neutral. It is very biased, right? Um, and I think that often historians and archaeologists, archaeologists have forgotten this a little bit. Uh, but there's now, I mean, there are now new experts. Uh, one fascinating new book is by J James C. Scott, the anthropologist, uh, called Against the Grain. It's a really breakthrough book here um, where he shows that actually the so-called Dark Ages, you know, that we always talk about the Greek Dark Ages, for example, or, the, you know, the Middle Ages are sometimes called the Dark Ages, were for many people actually great. You know, a Dark Age was great because then you were not being oppressed by some powerful monarch anymore, right? And there was more freedom. Uh, and people lived healthier lives as well because they were not being cramped together as slaves in cities anymore. Um, yeah, so everything turns upside down once you realize that the source material itself is really, really biased. And is your argument then that it's power, but also farming, is that right, um, that causes these kind of downturns in people's fortunes? Yeah, it really starts with people settling down. So, for example, if you look at the archaeology of war, um, there's hardly any archaeological evidence for warfare before 
the moment that we settled down, which is around 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, there have been 3,000 skele- skeletons have been found that are old enough sort of to uh, sort of to account for, how do you say this, from, from the, the state of nature, as Thomas Hobbes and, and Rousseau called it, and no evidence of, of violence, or almost none. Um, if you look at cave paintings, for example, and you would expect that if there really was some kind of war of all against all going on, that someone, some artist from the Stone Age would say, you know what, today I'm going to make a nice painting of this war of all against all. But it has, hasn't been found, right? Even though we've got hundreds of cave paintings of people hunting deers or, or bisons or whatever. Uh, but then after people settled down, once they beca- became sedentary, you suddenly do find these cave paintings, which is very suggestive, I think. Um so that was when things went wrong. Agriculture made things even worse, right? Because if you look at people's health, for example, well, the nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle is is not too bad, actually. You get a bit of exercise, you have a varied diet, a bit of fruit, vegetables, a uh, bit of meat, uh, but then you settle down and uh, and you eat the same thing all day, grain, grain, grain. And you have to work very hard for it as well, right? No pain, uh, no grain. Um uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Um, and then if you look at infection diseases, right? I mean, Corona itself, right? COVID-19. That is a very modern civilized disease that we get because we live too close to our animals, right? And so as soon as people domesticated species like cows and, and chicken and you name it, they started getting a lot more diseases from these animals. So all these horrible uh, diseases that that we know about, you know, whether it's the plague or malaria or uh, polio, we all got them from these animals, and they're quite modern phenomena. Um, uh, yeah, this is these all these disasters are quite recent, uh, and we tend to assume that that they're sort of part of the human experience that 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 it's always been this way, uh, but that's not the case. Um, Given that humans aren't these kind of brutes and these savages who have been saved by civilization, where Mm. did that idea come from and why is it so powerful? Well, I think it's in the interest of those in power, right? Um, This whole idea in Western culture that civilization is only a thin veneer, you know, veneer theory, as some scientists call it, goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, right? Thucydides, one of the first historians already gave us this description of human nature when he talked about the, the, the plague in Athens or the civil war near Kortira, right? And, um, you know, he has this passage somewhere in his, in, in his history of the Peloponnesian War where he said, you know, human nature was ready to show its true colors, right? And people behave like beasts and animals. Um, then you look at the uh, early Christian church fathers, uh, St. Augustine, for example, um, well, uh, then you find out about the concept of original sin and the idea that we're all born as sinners. Then you look at the Enlightenment and you would expect some kind of break, you know, in the, in the, in the view of human nature. But actually what you see is continuity. So these Enlightenment philosophers, many of them, David Hume, Adam Smith, um, Thomas Hobbes, um, they had a pretty dark view of human nature as well and also tended to assume, or at least thought we should assume uh, in politics, that people are selfish by nature. And again, we fast forward and we look at the sort of the ideology that has reigned for the past 40 years and that by most people's described as neoliberalism. Um, what is the central dogma? Again, it's that people are selfish and greed is good, right? And that we have to design our whole society around it. So again and again and again, the same idea pops up 
in our in our history and in our culture. And I think the reason why that happens is that it's in the interest of those in power. Because if we cannot trust each other, then we need them, right? Then you need a king or a monarch or a CEO or a manager. If we can actually trust each other, if most people are pretty decent, then we can totally revolutionize our society. You know, it's it's not some it's 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 not some happy clappy book about oh this guy has written a book about human kindness. No no no, this is a dangerous idea that we're talking about here. It's subversive because people in power serve to gain from maintaining their position because humans need someone to guide them. Exactly, exactly. Were there any particular cultural uh, texts or books or films or ideas that you had to dispel or that you knew you had to dispel when you started writing this book? Oh, I had a long hit list, obviously. So (laughs) where to start? Uh, Lord of the Flies, written by William Golding. You know, this dark story about how kids behave horribly when they shipwreck on an island. Uh, Jared Diamond and his story about Easter Island, how this civilization destroyed itself because of selfishness and, and and that's supposed to be some kind of metaphor for our future, right? Because what we're doing to our planet. Um, well, the famous experiments from the 60s, Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo, in which, you know, just healthy, normal students behaved horribly and turned into, into, the, in, turned into these sadistic monsters. Uh, the, the Stanley Milgram experiment that is often used to sort of explain the atrocities of the Second World War and the Holocaust, in which... Uh, just again, normal and healthy volunteers were willing to shock, um, uh, yeah, uh, other people uh, in another room. Um, I knew I had to look into all of these because, uh, yeah, this 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 idea that deep down we're selfish or worse, you know, we are capable of the most horrible things, and that there's a Nazi in each of us, right? Which was really put forward as, uh, especially in the sixties, as one of the explanations. Of, of the Second World War. Um, it comes back again and again. So I knew that it would have to be a big book or a long book, yeah. I mean, this is a classic question that always gets wheeled out. But I mean, how can yeah. we explain something like the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's obviously ridiculous on a on a good history podcast like yours to sort of have the, the pretense to, to give an explanation. Well, the Holocaust, how do we explain that? Well, because of A, B, and C. <laughs> Well, it doesn't really work like that. Um, the irony of writing a, writing a book about human kindness is that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about the dark chapters in our history, because, you know, as we talked about earlier, we're clearly also the cruelest species, species in the animal kingdom. Um, I think we can sort of find a beginning of an answer in this new theory from biologies, biologists. So what biologists have been arguing in the past couple of years is that human beings have evolved to be friendly. And this this is actually our secret superpower, right? It's the reason why we built pyramids and spaceships and you name it, because we can cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. And this is even, you know, you can even see it in our own bodies. We're, for example, the only species in the animal kingdom that blush, right? Which is a very peculiar thing. Why do we blush? Well, how could that ever be an evolutionary advantage? Well, it helps to establish trust between people, which makes them, uh, enables them to cooperate. Um, but what biologists have also emphasized is that there really is a dark side to this friendliness. And again, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Look at the history of progress. Where does progress often come from? Where does it start? Well, it starts with people who are unfriendly, unreasonable, nasty, difficult, 
right? Who are willing to go against the status quo and are not, you know, enthralled but with groupthink or something like that. Um, and then you think about sort of the big atrocities in our history and you realize that so often the qualities that we that we see as good, like loyalty or comradeship or friendship, are also implicated in our worst crimes, right? So I have this one chapter in the book about the question, why did the German soldiers, you know, the Wehrmacht, why did they fight so hard in 1944 and 1945 when it was clear that they were going to lose the war? Um, and Allied psychologists couldn't understand it. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war and they kept hearing the same answer. It was comradeship, kamaradschaft, you know, friendship. They were fighting for their friends, not because they were brainwashed by Nazi ideology, even though that was important. I mean, especially for those at the top. But for the average foot soldier, comradeship was the, the most important driving force and the reason why they kept fighting, even though it was clear that the Germans were going to lose the war. Um, I think that is one of the dark truth, truths about human beings is that um, we so often do the most terrible things in the name of the good, right? I think what also interests me about that chapter in your book is it really highlights the value of comradeship rather than any ideology. Like these people weren't fighting for ideas necessarily. They were much more fighting for a sense of not letting their their fellow men or women down. Is, is, yeah. that, is that a fair assessment of it? Yeah, and I really think you have to make sort of a distinction between all the different roles that are played here, right? So the average German Wehrmacht soldier was probably not as ideologically motivated as we tend to think, right? It was probably more motivated by... And again, if you think about this for a while longer, it makes sense, right? That you're just, I mean, this average guy conscripted and that you fight for it mainly for your friends, right? But then I'm obviously not saying that ideology or anti-Semitism is unimportant. Absolutely not. I mean, think about the Crusades. The average foot soldier that went to Israel to slaughter Muslims or something... Obviously, he wasn't sort of really well-versed in Christian, Christian ideology, right? Often these people would just, I don't know, go because their group would go, right? And they would fight for their friends or they have some kind of vague idea of the evil outgroup. Um, but they were mostly motivated by sort of their direct ties. Uh, but that didn't mean that their leaders, you know, the, the theologians or the monarchs or whoever, were not ideologically motivated. So you have to really distinguish these different levels. And you could also have sort of specialist fighting forces, like, I don't know, whether you talk about Einsatz uh, groups or, uh, you know, the, the, the camp butchers, you know, at the concentration camps. Uh, probably many of them were highly ideologically motivated. So, I mean, as I said, you know, it feels ridiculous to sort of answer the question, yeah, how do you, how do you fit the Holocaust in your theory? Well, it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We are really meant to work together, and that is our secret superpower as a species. It's the reason why we built Musea and the Neanderthals are on display there instead of the other way around. I think what's also interesting is the idea that leaders... Um, who may have more of an ideology than, say, the average foot soldier. Leaders may more believe in the things that they tell other people to do, and that's somehow due to this acquired sort of sociopathy. Is, is, that, is that right? Yes, yes. Well, if there's one thing that historians, sociologists, and psychologists can all agree on, it is that power corrupts, right? 
power is this incredibly dangerous drug that we now know from, you know, even looking at the brain in scans, right? We know that power damages the brain, right? Your natural capacity for empathy, for example, or your natural capacity to mirror other people, right? If you yawn, then obviously, often that's contagious. You know, if you touch your, I don't know, you touch your nose, then often I touch my nose as well. People mirror each other all the time. But what do you find is that people who are under the influence on the drug of power, they stop mirroring other people. It's sort of as if they become unplugged, disconnected from the rest of humanity. And... Um, this is, yeah, this is something you experience again and again. There's one psychologist, Dacher Keltner, who calls it the power paradox. Because the interesting thing is that, actually, if you want to have power, in most situation, situations, it's not very smart to behave in a Machiavelli, Machiavellian way, right? If you look at small societies, people really prefer those who are really friendly and humble to be in charge. You look at nomadic hunter-gatherers and, and you find that like this humbleness is really a prerequisite, basically. Imagine Trump in prehistory, you know, he wouldn't survive for long. People wouldn't like him. He would be expelled from the group and he would die alone because you're really so interdependent. Um, but then once people are in power, right, they, they get influences by this drug of power, they change. Right? And this power makes them into a nasty person. And nomadic hunter-gatherers always knew this. So they used systems, especially of shame, um, to keep those in power in check. For example, if you were a brilliant hunter and you would come back to the camp and uh, you know you would have really come back with this huge deer or something, and pe people would ask you, um, well, how was, the, how was the hunt today? Did you catch anything? Then you would say, no, 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 nothing really, nothing really. And then that person would know, you know tonight is going to be a wonderful dinner. Uh, and, and there's this process that has been described as, by anthropologists as sort of talking down the meat that someone came in with something and they would sort of, oh, that's nothing. That's, oh, that sounds it's nasty. You know, it's not an accomplishment at all. Um, and this is a very healthy uh, uh, process in any society that you sort of, you, you know what power can do to people. So you make sure that you keep each other in check. I think a very telling fact about the current system we have right now is that actually it has become politically advantageous to be without shame. For most of our history, shame was incredibly important to survive. Now you can be president of the United States because you cannot feel the ability to feel any shame at all. And it makes you the most powerful person in the world. I mean, that's a real indictment of this so-called civilized system that we have right now. So why don't we keep our leaders in check in the same way that would have happened in the past? Ah, oh, that's a big question as well. I mean, um, obviously it's a failure of institutions, right? I mean, the idea, the Enlightenment idea was that you would have this balance of power. Basically, what the, what the Enlightenment philosophers got right is they understood that power corrupts. That's, they were 100% right about that. So James Madison, the founding fathers of the United States, they... they understood that you have to design a system where those in power sort of keep each other in check and then so no one can become the all-powerful dictator. I think the great mistake that they made is that they assumed that this selfishness from those in power, that it was also to be found in other, all the other people, right? They assumed that it's just human nature in general, that all people deep down are selfish. While that's not really the case, you know, power corrupts, but not all people are corrupted, right? Um, so then we started designing and building institutions, you know, schools or democracies or workplaces that again and again and again sort of assumed the worst 
in other people, right? It's it's a little bit as if those in power looked in the mirror, right? And they assumed that other people would be like they were themselves. Um, and what you get is what you, or what you expect is what you get. So if you build a school that assumes that kids are naturally lazy and selfish and, you know, just want to drink alcohol and, and do drugs and or watch Netflix all day, then, you know, you're going to have a very strict school. And that's, that's basically how kids are going to behave. Um, but you can also do it in a very different way. And then uh, you'll have a very different kind of society. So, I mean, how can we keep our leaders in check, do you think? Well, there are, there are a couple of ways. So uh, obviously, uh, shame still plays a really important role. And it works with a lot of leaders and politicians, right? I mean, we tend to dislike it, right? How sort of sometimes Twitter you know, sort of goes wild and sort of tries to pull somebody down. Uh, this is, there's this interesting book with the title, So You Have Been Publicly Shamed. There's, there's often sort of an, an overcorrection, right? That we do a little bit too much of it. <laughs> um, but it's still a useful process, right? Uh, it's, uh, I think, really central to the human experience. I think it's not, it's not a coincidence that we're the only species in the animal kingdom that blush, right? Um, but then, uh, I think the the really most important thing that you'd have to do is to redistribute power in the most radical way possible. So now what we have is a democracy that's not really a democracy. It's a, sort of an elective aristocracy, right? We are we can choose our own aristocrats, but that doesn't mean we're actually in power, right? A real democracy would be something like they had in Greece, even though that was only for the men, but that was where they, you know, they would randomly choose citizens from the population to be a politician for a year or a bit longer. I think I think that is what a genuine democracy would look like, or what they call deliberative or participatory democracy. And there's uh, there have been great experiments ever since the 1980s uh, in countries around the world where they actually tried this to to bring together, you know, just normal average citizens, whether they're left-wing or right-wing or rich or poor, young or old, you bring them around a table, you give them access to experts and information, and you know what? It works. They come up with really sensible compromises. If you treat sort of voters as adults, if you treat them as citizens, then they'll behave like citizens. If you treat them as idiots, as we're now doing so often, then they'll behave like idiots, right? It's, it's not rocket science. Do you think that we as citizens need to learn anything from our history in terms of how we view other people? So, for instance, things like racism or things like prejudice, do we need to have a better understanding of where they originate historically in order to uh, solve them today? Oh, of course. I mean, I mean, history is the most subversive of all the sciences, right? History just makes you realise that things can be different. There's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. It's all, I mean... It's all temporary and it will change anyway for the for the better or for the worse. So I think that's extraordinarily empowering. It's what I mean, one of the reasons why, why historically marginalized groups, you know, when they start their process of emancipation, they always start with their history because they have to know who they are, right? Um and it's the same when whether you talk about, you know, when you talk about tribalism or racism, etc. I mean, you'll discover that this sort of tribal instinct. It's, I mean, it's really within human nature itself, right? It's, uh, it goes back all the way to, you know, the dawn of, of everything, basically. And I think it was there already before the dawn of civilization. I think that it's just gotten much worse because we, now we live in these hierarchical uh, sedentary societies, while nomadic and togetherers lived in much more flexible societies where they had a lot of 
exchange between groups and you could easily switch between groups, etc. Um, and I think that's a lesson for us as well today that you need sort of flexible social arrangements where you, for example, where you have schools where you meet a lot of people who are different from you, you know, different races, different levels. You got to mix it all together. The, the the whole idea that that we sort of put kids in cages, well, maybe cages is a bit too much. Anyway, we put them in rooms <laughs> uh, and we sort of select them all on a certain age and a certain level. And, and we say, well, you're the smart ones and you're the not so smart ones. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. You should mix them all together and like all the different levels, all the different ages, all the different genders, because that's what real society should be as well. And then from an early age, you know what it is to work together with people who are a bit different from you. Um, and then people say, well, that, that wouldn't work. Well, I can name you a long list of schools where they're actually already trying this and it works really, really well. We're obviously talking at the moment in the middle of a massive pandemic, which I'm presuming hadn't started when you finished writing this book. Has it? Has it? Has writing this book given you any insights into what's happening right now and vice versa? Are there any case studies from what's happening that you think tie into the themes of your book? Well, I mean, it's obviously very tempting to say, well, I predicted all this, you know, and this is exactly how people during a crisis behave. But I couldn't help to be reminded of, of you know the first chapter in the book where i talk about how how people behave during times of crises so often we tend to think that after um, a natural disaster say a tsunami or you know a flood or or uh, an earthquake that the worst comes out in each and every one of us i mean we've seen the stories in the news uh what happened after katrina for example 2000, 2005 when new orleans was flooded news was full of story about lootings and, and plundering and violence etc uh, but what actually happened, and this is something that sociologists have confirmed in hundreds of cases now, we've got evidence going back to the 60s, is that actually you get an explosion of altruism. Crises really tend to bring out the best in, in people. And I, I actually start the book with, uh, with the Blitz, you know, the, the, when, when, when London and the rest of the UK was bombed by the Germans. And all the experts have predicted that it would be pandemonium, you know, and people would, you know, panic and would be very selfish and that the military would have its hands full sort of controlling the hysterical masses. But what happened in reality was the opposite. Then the elite said, well, that was probably because, uh, because of the British spirit, right? Because uh, keep calm and carry on. That's very British. And they said, you know what? We're going to bomb the German and, and it will work with them. And then Germany was bombed 10 times as heavy as, as, as the UK. And the same thing happened. You know, actually the cities that were bombed, war production increased there, you know, made the cities more resilient. Uh, it's just, it keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. So I had a bit of the same feeling at the beginning of this pandemic, where I let a lot of pieces in newspapers and on TV where people said, oh, uh, the population won't be able to, to handle this and won't be able to, to, you know, survive this for long. Well, actually, what you were seeing was, you know, solidarity was really blooming. But um, we obviously don't know where this is going in the long run. Um, throughout history, crises have always been abused or so often been abused by those in power. Burning of the Reichstag, Hitler. 9-11, two illegal wars in Afghanistan in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, what's happening in Hungary right now? I mean... It's very easy to imagine that this crisis could lead us down a dark path. But then there's also really, there are really good reasons for hope, I think. Um, 
you know, as I said, solidarity is blooming. We seem to have this renewed appreciation for the, the what we call the vital professions. Um, ideas that used to be dis- dismissed five years ago, like higher taxation for the wealthy, basic income, you know, completely eradicating poverty. They're now moving into the mainstream. Um, it's very open, <laughs> the future right now. It's very open. And uh, I think that that just means that you have to pay attention right now. I mean, just going back very briefly to the idea about news reporting, because this is really interesting. Why do you think the news is so obsessed with reporting the negative side of stories when there's so much positive that could also be arguably reported? Um, well, I think there are a couple of reasons. So in the first place, it's a little bit in human nature itself. What, what psychologists call the negativity bias we just tend to give more attention to the negative than to the positive. And there is probably an evolutionary reason for this, you know? It makes sense to be afraid. You'd rather be afraid once too often for of a snake or a spider than, than not enough, right? So this is, this is simply a fact about our existence. Evil is stronger. The negative is stronger. But the good is in the majority, right? They're just the good can only win with an overwhel- overwhelming force, right? Um, and uh, this is this this is also what you see uh, in the news. In the end, it, this goes much deeper than just the news, right? Two hundred years ago, we didn't have the the news, the modern news industry industry, but we did have veneer theory, right? This very old idea that deep down people are just selfish. Um, I think I have to, actually, in the end, I think I have to do more research in this, especially on the difference with sort of other cultures, Eastern cultures, because it seems to be quite Western thing as well to assume that people deep down are selfish. Um, and I really have, I haven't really got to the bottom of this in the end, I think. Finally, then, I mean, given this maybe cultural, but maybe widespread sort of tendency towards negativity, what what new view of of history and of human nature would you like to leave readers of your book with? I think that we have to update our view of human nature in line with the latest science and sort of move to a more realistic view of human nature. And what I mean by that is that often we equate realism with cynicism, right? And when someone says, be real, it means, you know, be a little more pessimistic. Um, Actually, I think the cynics are really naive, right? It's really naive to be the cynic about human nature. And um, obviously, as I said before, human beings are not angels or anything, but we are hardwired for connection and for cooperation. I mean, that is, you see it in the, in the design, the evolutionary design of our bodies itself. And uh, you you know it from the fact that, you know, loneliness is, is, is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day we are really meant to work together. And that is our secret superpower as a species. It's the reason why we built Musea and the Neanderthals are on display there instead of the other way around. So yeah, let's move to a more realistic view of human nature and then let's implement that view in our institutions. That was Rutger Bregman. Humankind, A Hopeful History is out now published by Bloomsbury. Rutger also appeared on our podcast in 2017 to discuss his book, Utopia for Realists. You can find that at historyextra.com forward slash utopia hyphen podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
Join us next on Friday when I'll be speaking to Annie Gray about the life of Churchill's cook. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.